Welcome to episode 46 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my guest is Zandi Hartig, a Los Angeles-based writer, actor, and producer. Zandi, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to be here, and sometimes Twitter is wonderful because I get to meet people like you. And sometimes it's horrible, but most of the time it's wonderful. So Zandi and I are going to talk today about the Paul Thomas Anderson film from 2017, Phantom Thread. Yes, I'm so excited. I've already done a show on Paul Thomas Anderson. I had Adam Naiman, the film critic, on to talk about Punch Drunk Love. I think in many ways Phantom Thread is kind of related to Punch Drunk Love. It's Hmm. a movie about weirdos that find each other. It's a romance between people who kind of need each other. They give each other the things that the other person could use. I could see that, except the energy in Punch Drunk Love is very frenetic. And in Phantom Thread, it's very lyrical. Mm -hmm. And stately. Stately, yes. But that's like, I never know how to use this word, this phrase, but it's deceptively simple and straightforward. Does that mean it's not really simple and straightforward? Because that's what I'm trying to say. It seems more complex than it is, or the simplicity of the movie is hiding something more complicated. Yes, that's what I mean to say. It was sold to us as the final film from the great Daniel Day-Lewis. Oh, that makes me sad. He announced after he finished the production that this would be his last film. And I wondered whether or not it was because he had a bad time on the movie. That was my initial reaction to the news was like, oh, was it that bad that he's not going to be in a movie anymore? I don't think but it I don't was think bad. So. No, I just think that, you know, you should quit while you're ahead at the top top of your game. And I just hope that he's like Steven Soderbergh and uh, is um, being tricky. I know. But yeah, I, I Soderbergh... believe him. I, be- I totally believe him. And that's, I I admire it, but I hope it's not true. I hope not either. Um, He's still relatively young. Like he could conceivably keep going. Uh, It's his decision. What were you going to say about Soderbergh? Because I could talk about that lovely person forever too. Oh, I love Soderbergh. But I remember, yeah, like about 15 or 16 films ago, he said that he was retiring. Right. Well, I was the lucky beneficiary of that not being true. Having been yes, into, you've been in a couple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very glad he didn't. <laughs> it's a showbiz thing. It's like um, lots of people say, "I'm leaving. I'm retiring. I'm getting out of the I game." I can't blame and, them. It's really tough when you're not working, and then when you're working, it's the best job in the entire world. He's like he's also deceptively simple as a person. He, um, I mean, he could have just changed his mind, but like. Uh, he's extremely easygoing, but he's clever and he's, he's like quiet and um, he listens to everything that everybody's saying. Very rarely do you meet your idols and they're actually better than you thought they would be. He's just a delightful person and a democratic uh, filmmaker and so unpretentious and so present and cool and easy great just great so this is daniel day lewis's last film Mm -hmm. supposedly but what i think is very interesting about phantom thread you know he's clearly the central character but the best performance and the real discovery in this film is vicky crepes the luxembourgian actress who plays alma you think 
you think she's the best? I thought she was the best performer in the movie because I was, uh, I was confused as to um, who she was. Like I had never heard of her or seen her before in anything, but I thought that she held her own and then some against Daniel Day Lewis in this movie. It was his last film. So you would think that he'd be pulling out all the stops and he has done so in previous movies, but he's so understated and quiet in this film. But you have no idea. That is so hard to do. And that's a generous, generous performer who doesn't have to do that and lets the person he's acting with shine. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's incredibly hard to do. And that's, um, that's, you know, taking your ego out and very few people can do that. You're aware though, while you're watching the movie that this is yet another um, collaboration between a filmmaker and an actor, which there will be blood was. Yes, but that is such a different performance, right? Mm-hmm. That was like stylized. And I mean, some people mocked it, but I thought it was like stylized and grounded at the same time. And that's also incredibly hard to do. And mm-hmm. the fact that he can do something like that and then something very quiet and measured like this just like blows me away. Like he's just extraordinary. And this is a, an amazing swan song performance and also what i love about him is we really know very little about him his personal life we like know who he married and we know he has kids and that's about it and isn't that nice because then you can really just immerse yourself in the character he's playing rather than say like oh this scandal and you know he believes that his children shouldn't bathe (laughs) once a week (laughs) Why do I need to know that? (laughs) Why do you need to tell CNN that? I don't know. Um, Yeah, he's just, you know, he's... What else do you need to know other than what he gives you on screen? It's true. Like, he's not known for his talk show appearances or anything. I don't even know if he does them. He's even done a talk show. He must have done a classy talk show, maybe. You mean Charlie Rose before he was discovered before to be a perv? Was, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that he's shown up on Charlie Rose or whatever at some point. But, you know, I also think of Vicky Crepes as being the first famous Luxembourgian. I mean, that it's not a very big country. No. I don't even know. Yeah. I know that it's neutral, right? Well, let's talk about um, Leslie Manville. She's a Mike Lee veteran and she plays Cyril. I, uh, first of all, Mike Lee is amazing. And you just reminded me I need to watch more, um, his films again. I just adore him, like adore him. Oh, Topsy Turvy is like one of my favorites and actually is very similar to uh, Phantom Thread in its like very small subject matter and its execution and its delicacy. And dropping you into a specific world, too. Yeah, like, period piece. But Phantom Thread really does uh, get a lot of bang for its buck in terms of uh, its setting. Like, it really does feel like uh, the mid-50s in London. Absolutely. This was Anderson's first film that he shot entirely outside of the United States. It, a lot of it was shot uh, right around where my mom was born. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Where's that? Uh, in Yorkshire. mm 
uh, I believe it was Lyme, England. I'm not totally sure, but those, be- you know, when he goes out to the country right by the mm-hmm. water, that's mm-hmm. like where my, like outside of the moors, I believe. Um, it's yeah. I was like, where is this place? And then I looked it up. I'm like, Oh, that's very near where my mom was born. That's crazy. But even the sort of scenes where they're driving around and stuff like that, it feels like another time. Like, I don't know how much period detail they put into the movie or whether they actually found some locations that have not aged a day since the 50s. I mean, in London, it's quite possible that it could be either. You can sew almost anything into the canvas of a coat. When I was a boy, I started to hide things in the linings of the garments. Things that only I knew were there. Secrets. Good morning. Will you have dinner with me? I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. You look beautiful. Very beautiful. I have things I want to do. Things I simply cannot do without you. Reynolds has made my dreams come true, and I have given him what he desires most in return. (laughs) Every piece of me. Can you explain to the listener the basic concept of Phantom Thread? Uh, Phantom Thread is about this um, um, high society designer named Reynolds. Please forgive me if I can't remember his last name. Do you remember his last name? Reynolds Woodcock. Woodcock, of course. Reynolds Woodcock, who designs uh, beautiful, elegant gowns for women in society, um, specifically. uh, And he makes them feel beautiful. He tailors it. They're very feminine and uh, elegant. And he himself is very elegant and is um, obsessed with his dead mother. He seems to make these these gowns in honor of his dead mother. And he sews in little secrets into everything he makes um, that only he knows. He doesn't tell his, he doesn't tell his patrons. Anyway, he, uh, he, his sister uh, manages his, uh, um, I don't want to say showroom. What is it? It's like a fashion house. Fashion house. Thank you. Um, and um, she's really the, uh, he's the creative side. She's the business side. And she suggests, uh, because he's quite exhausted, every time he makes a creation, he goes into kind of an exhaustion afterwards. It's like when you look forward to a party and then after the party's done, you have this like big crash, like come down, you know, or at least I did. Um, and so she suggests he go to his country house and kind of detox and relax so he goes up there and it's in uh, the countryside in the north of England and he goes to a tea house and he meets this uh, young waitress and he's just taken by her. Something about her, her innocence, her, her, um, her freshness, her pure purity, her personality, he's just taken by her and she... Uh, uh, she becomes his muse and um, she's just infatuated with him. And I think he sees her as somewhat of a blank slate, uh, which is his, uh, his mistake. 
because she is absolutely not. She has a very strong personality, which she mutes a bit. But if he had really been paying attention to her, he would have seen it. And she uh, becomes his muse. And as she gets to know him more and more, she sees that he's very controlling and uh, very persnickety and very stuck in his ways and makes everybody cater to his moods. And at first, uh, the sister, Cyril, is very much uh, managing his life and managing him and on his side so he can produce these beautiful gowns for people. But eventually she starts to side with Alma, this, you know, his muse. And as Alma asserts herself more, Reynolds becomes more irritated. And uh, he, she plans this evening alone with him, which Cyril advises her against, and it's an utter disaster. And as a result of that, she's, she's about to leave him. She doesn't know what to do. And uh, she has an opportunity to pick um, some poison mushrooms, some poisonous mushrooms, and she decides to poison him a little bit. And he becomes completely helpless. She nurses him back to life. He doesn't know what happens, but he's so grateful to be alive, he asks her to marry him. They get married. It's blissful for just a tiny second. And then on the honeymoon, it completely falls apart. He thinks it's a huge mistake. He tells her that he tells his uh, sister that ever since she's come into his life, there's a darkness that's descended over the house. He loses some patrons. He's miserably unhappy. And at the end, she uh, poisons him again, except she tells him and he eats it nonetheless. And they fall in love all over again because she gets him vulnerable. And then she sees her life in the future, or maybe it's happening where they have children and Cyril is helping them take care of the children and they have a happy life together. And that's the end. While I was watching Phantom Thread, I started to wonder what was going on tonally with the movie because there were moments that reminded me of two great filmmakers, Hitchcock, because there's something very Rebecca-like about oh, this film. Oh my goodness, yes. And Vicky Crepes is a little Joan Fontaine-ish in this movie too. Yeah, so Joan me Fontaine of, was like really pathetic. Well, I guess so. But 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 I, what I meant was more of a sort of like 40s or 50s movie star sort of persona. Completely. So it reminded me of Hitchcock, but it also reminded me a little bit of Stanley Kubrick. The well, driving scenes in the English countryside reminded me a lot of A Clockwork Orange. Oh, wow. That's so true. Oh my goodness. And and also the this like the interior uh in the in the fashion house felt very claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Like Stanley Kubrick could do. What I'm getting at with this is that those are two masters of uh suspenseful films and 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 psychological horror movies. And that's where I thought Phantom Thread was going in many ways, because there was a sort of a romance and a sweep to the film, but there was also this sort of dread, like who is Alma? Why is she poisoning him? What does she want? Um, the dread of, of this, this person coming into his life and, and being welcomed in and him starting to not be able to take it, you mm-hmm. know, like I thought it was interesting to watch a second time because of how sensitive Reynolds Woodcock is to uh, 
to distractions and to, you know, people making too much noise when they're eating is the sort of thing that would ruin his day. There are some people who, my son gets so annoyed at his, at his younger brother when he eats. He's like, I can't take it. He can't be near him. He can't stand the sounds of him crunching. Now this is also because it's his little brother, but he is really like me. Unfortunately, he's, he's inherited my sensitivities, but like if some clothes are not comfortable, if it's not Mm -hmm. like the softest material, he can't take it. Like everything has to be perfect in his bed, like that kind of stuff. And I feel so bad for this kid that he got it from me, but there are (laughs) people I can't remember. There's like a particular term for it, but it's also because he's like exacting and controlling. I mean, that's, it's not just because he's sensitive. He just wants things the way he wants it. And that's it. And it's an understanding in the whole house, right? I'm Cyril knows that uh, things have to be just right. Yes. But she's secretly in control of everything. She just lets him, the women are secretly in control of everything, but they just let him think that he is. But there's that great scene at the end when she's like, I could like, you know, I could uh, ruin you or something like Cyril says that like, I could, you know, don't even, don't even try because I could ruin you. Something like that. Yeah. Like she basically says, uh, you know, don't start what you can't finish. Right. Right. She doesn't say that, but it's that sort of thing. Like, don't, don't tempt me. Don't try me. Don't try me. I'll show you what I can do. Yes, exactly. But, but anyway, so, so, um, so Reynolds Woodcock is, uh, very, very, um, fastidious and wants everything to be just right and is driven up the wall by little tiny things. But when he first meets Alma, her very first appearance on the screen is her being a klutz. She like stumbles into the room and makes a racket, which he finds very enchanting. You know what I found out about that, about that, uh, scene that he wouldn't meet her before that scene. He wanted it to be fresh. So they had never met before that scene. He wanted her to come out. And that's the first time they meet because he wanted to, her to be unsettled. Wow. And do you, if you notice, like her skin is flushes very easily, like mm-hmm. right around her cheeks. And she's so flushed in that scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she she's... She looks a little bit blotchy, in fact. But because it's, she's um, so shy. I mean, she's so, like, taken with him, like, legitimately. Mm-hmm. Like, they're mm-hmm. flirting heavily. He's just, like, staring at her very calmly, and he's testing her. He's like, uh, you know, he doesn't want her to write it down. He wants her to just remember it. He's like, can you remember it? Yeah, it's very flirty. And then she basically... Uh, and then she she writes on his uh, hungry boy. Yeah, she writes on his uh, receipt for the hungry boy. Yeah, the hungry boy. <laughs> when he's so much older than she is. And he talks about hunger a lot in the movie. Like he says, you know, I'm so happy. I, I I'm I'm just. At one point, he says something like, um, "You look beautiful, very beautiful. You're making me extremely hungry." Well, I'll tell you something. I've worked in rest or I worked in restaurants for a embarrassingly long time. And I noticed that people behave really badly when it comes to food. It's extremely personal to them. And the only th- other thing I can think of that's that personal is sex. 
And there is just such a correlation between food and sex. Like it's incredible. Like hunger is hunger in like, you know, literal and psychological terms. And he definitely means it like, you know, sexually, like, uh, you know, beauty just it brings up this hunger in him. But he also, ha- he's, he is, is very sort of reserved and chaste. Like when they have their first uh, hangout together, where he brings her to the estate and they're just sort of like sitting across from each other, there's a sort of an air or a charge in the air of, um, of a romance. But then, then he immediately like, takes her upstairs to get fitted for uh, a dress that he's working on. Like he, he just, he's not really um, he's, his mind is never too far away from work. Well, you never see them actually have sex. No, that's true. I think he's trying to destabilize her too. And also when Mm -hmm. inspiration strikes, he doesn't want to uh, impede that. Like that's his foremost thing. And she, uh, she inspires something in him. He comes up with an idea but it's also to destabilize her, you know, and then Cyril walks in and she's like, what is going on? Like, you know, she's think she's thinking, Oh, I'm getting undressed for this guy probably. And then he's like putting like the, the muslin, you know, designing this dress for her and, and saying, you know, you barely got a bosom, you know, like all these things. She's like, I know. (laughs) And, uh, and Cyril's taking down her measurements and she's like, what is this thing? I'm, but she's still really intrigued and he's absolutely flirting with her. She is too. She's like, why haven't you been married? And he's like, I don't want to be dishonest with people or deceitful. Yeah. Um, but I think he loves to destabilize people unless it's people who are paying him for his, for his garments then he's like, I mean, you know, the thing with charming people, and he's certainly charming, is that you can, you have to watch out for them because the charm that they can turn on, they can also turn off. Definitely. And he's certainly that kind of person. One of the key lines for me in the movie is in that scene mm-hmm. where uh, where they're just sort of looking at each other, and then she says. If you want to have a staring contest with me, you will lose. I know. Well, that should have been assigned to him, shouldn't it? <laughs> if he were paying attention, he would see she's not a quiet country mouse, right? Yeah. But he didn't. That's what happens later in many ways, right? Like, Oh, for sure. She has the upper hand, certainly by the end. She, uh, they have a lot of staring contests, a lot. There's also another key line where Reynolds Woodcock says to her, I feel as if I've been looking for you for a very long time. She yeah. says, you found me. Whatever you do, do it carefully. Well, it sounds very meek when she says that, right? It could be taken as like, I could be hurt very easily. Please, please be gentle with me. But what it also means is like, watch out. Mm-hmm. Like I can, you know you better be nice to me or else. One thing I was feeling while I was watching the movie was that Reynolds Woodcock and his whole world and the the haute couture world that he is in fifties England is the past. This is a time where the culture is changing. And to me, Alma represented modern women. Oh yeah. 
also she becomes a designer. Mm -hmm. She learns from him and, you know, creates her. You know, what's interesting. Like um, I was thinking about this when he was doing his sketches in the beginning, they're all like ball gowns, like long floor length ball gowns, which, you know, didn't, except for the bus line, like they could be from the 1800s. You know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. uh, he has this wonderful line with Cyril where he's like, I just hate chic, chic, you know, he hates it. And, um, you know, what's chic, which means what's fashionable, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And he's furious about chic. And at the end, when he's sketching, after... um, can't remember it's after she poisons him or not but the the hemline is much higher and it seems like she's influencing him to be chic to like loosen up a little bit and get more with the times yeah i I mean this is a man who if he's in his mid-50s in the 50s that he was born in 1900 yeah and he was uh his mother has been long gone, but I also think that somebody like Reynolds, who seems to be to the manor born, probably didn't have a very close relationship with his mother anyway. Like, wouldn't wouldn't a young Reynolds Woodcock been mostly raised by nannies and things like that? Oh, I don't know. I, he seems incredibly tied to her. He doesn't mention his father at all. I would guess that he had a very chilly relationship with his father because he seems to be ruled by women. I just think that he's incredibly tied to her and is like searching for her in a way um, and is inspired by her. And she was his muse and now Alma is his muse and it's very disconcerting to him. Yes. And in that first scene where he's sort of recovering from the first poisoning, he sees his mother in the room with him. Yep. But then there's also a moment where Alma is in the room with him too. You see the two women in his hallucination. One is an idealized woman. You know, when you die, you can, everybody becomes a saint, right? Yeah. He puts her up on a pedestal as he does with Alma when he's designing the dress. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and almost the real woman. And how can a real woman compare with an idealized woman? They can't, mm-hmm. they can't, but she takes care of him, probably reminding him of, his mother when she's, when he's very, very sick and he's, she's the only one he's vulnerable around. She puts him into that position. She, she, she brings him down through the poisoning. Like she puts him physically into a position where he needs her. Right. Flat out on his ass, you know, also sees him throwing up and having diarrhea. You know, it just does not get more, <laughs> more vulnerable get more than, romantic that. than that. Yeah. <laughs> One of the inspirations that he had for the movie was he got very sick for a while. I think mm. he had really bad pneumonia. And he said one of the things that inspired him to make the movie was the look on his wife's face when he was sick because she was looking after him and he felt, you know, really sort of. It's almost sometimes when you're sick, it kind of reverts you back into sort of infancy and dependency. Yeah, and- I know. I this, uh, It's like the only time my older son calls me and wants me to take, to give him attention. <laughs> it's like when he's unwell. Yeah, it's Otherwise- kind of nice. I love it. <laughs> I understand Munchausen by proxy now. <laughs> <laughs> this movie won 
one Oscar. The the one Oscar this movie won was for the costume design. Ridiculous. I mean, it should have won for the costume design, but that just infuriates me. Like if he if either one have had one had a his histrionic uh uh monologue and then um like Jesus came into the picture or like uh um uh, I don't know. <laughs> like it, it's just because the film seems quiet that it wouldn't get an Oscar. It has to be about a huge subject matter for it to be an Oscar, just the same way as comedies don't win Oscars. Like, you know, they, it's just, I, I don't know why this movie did not win an Oscar, but that's just an indictment of the Oscars in general. Having said that, if anybody wants to vote for me for best actress, I will happily accept <laughs> so you won't you won't turn down the Oscar no like I'm not George too I'm not too proud yeah <laughs> I'm not Marlon Brando this it's a neat trick the cl- the clothing in this movie I mean we certainly get a good look at all the costumes that are being made but what I like about this movie is that as glamorous as the clothes are there is something kind of out of time about them like they are kind of stodgy in some ways like they're well made but his clientele are rich patrons Mm -hmm. and royalty and we see uh two women uh being fitted for clothes we see the actress gina mckee the british actress who plays um the first woman who comes to the shop and she's getting uh a dress for well she says that she needs that uh with everything we've been through i feel like it will give me courage they don't say what the woman has been through but then we see her at the society event where she looks like she can't actually get up that courage. She looks a lot happier oh, yeah. meeting Reynolds Woodcock and being in his company, getting the fitting. But when she's actually at the event that she needs the dress for, she looks like she can barely keep it together. That's very interesting. I That didn't register with me, but I totally see what you're saying. Like, these are, the, it's like um, he's providing a service for the, uh, the royalty that are sort of um, on the way out culturally, mm. like England is even changing and he's providing clothes for rich people and they're certainly paying the money for it, but it's not giving them the happiness. And then there's that other, even more amazing scene with the um, heiress. Oh my God. That was just amazing. I love that. Her name is Barbara in the film. They don't. Um, She's an American heiress. So yeah, she gets fitted for a dress. While she's being fitted, she says, I'm still so ugly. And then we see her at this weird press conference where she's with this playboy from the Dominican Republic. Um, and it's actually based on the heiress, Barbara Hutton. <gasps> wow. She was the heiress to the Woolworth fortune. And she married a playboy from the Dominican Republic who took her to the cleaners. Yeah, I, His I name could... was uh, Portofiro Ruberosa. Um, I vaguely know about that and you can tell just from that press conference that it's going to be an utter disaster and she knows too yeah but she's you know she's being uh fitted in this dress and she looks i i couldn't tell whether she was drunk or about to have a nervous breakdown but she looked really unhappy she's drunk yeah she's clearly an alcoholic trying to deal with that and in complete denial and Alma, you can see how angry she is about this woman because she's talking about honesty being so important right. in a marriage and in a wedding. You know, 
she's at the press conference. She's talking about how much honesty is so important to a relationship. And Alma's so mad because this woman's not being honest. Well, also she's just, I mean, she's just making such a show, right? Like mm-hmm. she, it's just such an incredible embarrassment to all of them. And at that point, Alma is like, you know, very much besotted with Reynolds. And so she takes on his personality where she's furious that this woman is ruining her dress by being in, making such a scene. So they both go over to the hotel room and basically, you know, rip it off her because (laughs) it's just not representing him very well. Um, And she, you know, she, she just feels so strongly because she's so in, in love and in awe of this man at that point. And, um, and she is him, you know, she's like subsumed by him. Um, uh, but I mean, that is just, first of all, it's so pathetic. And also it's quite funny. Like if anything, that's like the comic relief, but it's also so incredibly sad because these women are looking to these dresses for everything. And of course, a dress is a beautiful thing, but it's not everything. But I really relate because I have had so many times where I'm like, oh, if I just buy my these earrings, that'll just yeah. fix everything. Like everything. And, um, you know, I always go back and forth because I love clothes. I love aesthetics. I love furniture. I love design and like so, so, so much. Um, and yet fashion is very silly on one sense. In another sense, it's not because it's how people judge you when they first meet you. Mm -hmm. And you can express your personality through clothes, but it's just certainly not going to solve all your problems. If you show up in a beautiful dress, people might go, wow, that's a beautiful dress, but they won't think, maybe they will. I don't know. I'm not sure. I I go back and forth. I love dressing my kids and, uh, and I love the way they present themselves and how they show their personality through their clothes. And yet I can realize it's really shallow too. This was my second time seeing Phantom Thread. And the first time I watched the movie, I thought of that scene with the heiress as being, yeah, the comic relief uh, scene and also a little bit merciless in the way that it sort of <laughs> portrayed this the Barbara character. Like she was very pathetic and the film sort of like shows us exactly how pathetic it is. This time I thought it was very moving because it almost felt like the moment where the deepening of the love between Reynolds and Alma happens. It's uh, it reminds me of like the, the a folie adieu, like the moment yes. where a, a new couple realizes that um, they found each other, like that, that, that these two, neither one of them perhaps on their own could uh, summon the nerve to actually like go to her actual place and yank that dress back and take it, take it away. Well, I, but I the remember- two of them together can. I remember correctly, he's like, don't, 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 you know? And she's like, no, we must, you know? And yes, I think they're very aligned on that. But Um, he's the, he's kind of the tough guy. I mean, they back each other up. It's like they go over to the house to get it almost like they're debt collectors. Well, they are. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) give me that dress. (laughs) And don't, don't bring shame on the house of Woodcock or whatever, you know? Like like anyone would think that anyway. Yeah. No, it's true. 
that's what I mean by the folie adieu. Like nobody's yeah. going to be like, oh, the House of Woodcock's on the way down if this woman's wearing one of his dresses. Well, and she does scene. make him go to the press conference. Imagine going, having a press conference when you're going to marry someone. Like yeah. really? Yeah. Like the, she, <laughs> she, she, she had this press conference that's an utter disaster and she got completely drunk before it. And yeah. like, this is something she set up. And if you know one thing about English people, it's that they do not want to make a scene. No. And she, and Reynolds is there. She invites him to it and he couldn't be more embarrassed. It's like such a spectacle. But when they're, when they get away, like they they leave the, the hotel with the dress. And they're on a high. But he kisses her. Like, it's like, um. I guess this is what I mean about the comparison to Punch Drunk Love is the idea of these two weirdos finding each other. Like Reynolds is a mem- um, a, a, a well-respected man, but there's something deeply weird about him. And Alma is also weird. And the two of them together uh, have found each other. And that's really something special when you fall in love with someone is like, this is the person that I can do this with. Right. This is the person who won't judge me for being this way. Oh, but he does judge her. But he's warming up to her. Well, at that point, because she's she's all about him. Would you like me to ask Alma to leave? No. Why? Well, if you're going to make her a ghost, go ahead and do it. But please don't let her sit around waiting for you. I'm very fond of her. Oh, you're very fond of her, are you? Well, in that case... No, don't turn it on me. I don't want your cloud on oh, my head. shut up, You can shut right up. Don't pick a fight with me. You certainly won't come out alive. I'll go right through you, and it'll be you who ends up on the floor. Understood? Something I wanted to say uh, about uh, this movie and compared to Paul Thomas Anderson's other work is that he always has like very interesting female characters, except for... Uh, there will be blood, which I don't, I'm not sure that there's, oh, there's a few char- female characters, but really. There are women in of. the room in a couple of scenes, but there's no major And there's the little character. girl who his yeah. son marries, ends up yes. marrying. Um, uh, but, you know, all, all of his films have wonderful female characters. But this is the first film where the lead, where the lead uh, leads are, equally a man and a woman and one could argue that this is really Alma's movie since she's the one who really grows mm-hmm. um, and I think that's amazing like this is really when you think about it you think oh my god uh, you know oh there's so, he has so many great featured female performances but they're all really male-led yes. except for this film that's what I was uh, trying to say about how this was Daniel Day Lewis's big swan song, but in fact, he kind of shares the spotlight in this movie with this unknown actress. Who well, she is known. Was also not she, nominated. She should have been nominated, it's but she crazy. wasn't. Crazy, yeah. But this is what I'm saying. This is like nobody really. There's very few scenes where people yell, mm-hmm. and so people assume this is a quiet lyrical film, which. It is, but there it's like really dark too. It's really dark and twisted. You know, when when you have to you you feel like your only option is to poison your lover so that he he loves you and he does when you poison him, that's like pretty dark. 
I don't know. It's not ever crossed my mind when I'm having problems <laughs> with boyfriends, you know. Um, and, and, you know, the characters are sometimes not very sympathetic. And you go along for the ride. And you feel bad for both of them. And you feel pride in both of them. You feel joy for both of them. This is it. You don't know who she's really talking to in the mm-hmm. narration. Well, not narration. She's talking to someone. To, who to is she doctor. talking to? But yeah. really? You find I'm that out sure. later. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, there's a lot of mystery to this movie. There's, like, you don't know how things are going to end up. I mean, I don't know if it's really her child. She's just seeing into her future, maybe. We don't know mm-hmm. if she's going to end up really killing him in a fit of... <laughs> like, this is a very dark movie just because people don't yell doesn't make it uh uh oh it's such a pretty film yes it is very pretty but that's part of the deception right it's very secretive it's very subtle it grows in your mind at least in mine it get i the first time i watched it i was just dazzled ironically i was i was sewing masks on my sewing machine the first time i was like oh my friend Richard really likes this movie. I'll just put it on in the background while I sew. And then I like got entranced and I realized I can't really listen to it when the sewing machine is going on. So I sat down to watch it. And, you know, my attention span is pretty nil after COVID and Twitter, like really, yeah. really nil. <laughs> I can't remember the last book. I joined a book club just so that I forced myself to read. Um, and I sat there entranced i didn't even go get water i just was like what am i watching this is the most delicate and deep and devastating film and i'm so glad i watched it a second time because i was just kind of dazzled by it like everything the music i mean that think think about the fact that the that johnny greenwood and paul thomas anderson also did there will be blood which is like so big, so loud, yeah. so, you know, monochromatic, really. Like, yeah. how are these two films done by the same people? Like, it's just, it's just like, they're both really atmospheric, but in completely different ways. I just am bowled over by Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, bowled over. Like, all of his films have music constantly in them uh except for them well the master does too but there's times where it's absolutely quiet which is really interesting Mm -hmm. but it's just hard for me to believe that this man makes all of these movies that are so completely different and yet have an intrinsic thread of integrity that go through every single one of them but He's really, I don't know why it didn't pop into my head until Phantom Thread, but he's a legit genius and entertaining. I'm never bored, even with movies of his that I'm like have problems with. I'm never bored ever, ever, ever. And it takes a lot for me not to be bored. Phantom Thread I saw on my TV and I'd love to see it in a movie theater. The rest I've seen in movie theaters and I'm really happy about that. Here in Toronto, we're very lucky because um, we have theaters that have the capacity to show 70 millimeter. Um, I've seen The Master, Inherent Vice, and Phantom Thread in 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Um, what is so cool about the cinematography of this film that I want to talk about for a couple of minutes is that 
Paul Thomas Anderson served as his own cinematographer for Phantom Thread. Uh, his regular guy is Robert Ellswit, but he was unavailable. So he collaborated with his gaffer, whose name is Michael Bauman, and his Steadicam operator, Colin Anderson. They've worked together on the last seven films that he's made. Mm. But for this movie, they decided to do it as a collaboration between the three of them. Um, and then Anderson didn't take a credit for it because he considered it a collaboration, mm. which is too bad because there's no credited cinematographer, which means there's no Oscar nomination. You know, like the, I thought it was one of the most beautiful movies I've seen in years. Yeah. Um, and he's so good with the camera. I did see this one funny uh, comment that he'd said to, to Michael Bauman. One of the first things they talked about is he said, this cannot look like the crown. Absolutely. He couldn't be more right. I mean, it looks like um, they're not, mm, how am I trying? They, they, they don't make it look like Brideshead revisited the crown. It looks current. It looks like you're in the 50s with them. It looks like like the crew got in a time machine and went back to the yeah, 50s. Exactly. And so you're it's it the whole movie is really intimate. Like more intimate than anything I've seen him do. It's impressive but in a quiet way as opposed to the master and there will be blood which is on purpose epic. You know, this mm -hmm. is epic in in its own subtle way. This movie is so subtle. Um, I can, I guess I, I don't really understand, but people who say it's boring, I want to uh, punch them in the nose. <laughs> we know who we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to say. <laughs> we don't need to name names. No. <laughs> I sent it, I sent that tweet right off to you. When, yeah, no, uh, th that, that particular person just needs a lot of attention, like an inordinate amount of attention, like even more than most people on Twitter. And also very uh, dismissive, like calling oh. this movie a fashion movie is like so stupid. It's, you know what? Reynolds Woodcock would be so mad if he heard that boy say that it's a fashion movie. Like, no, it's not. It's about life. Yeah. <laughs> it's about life. It's also about mortality, for God's sakes. It's about life and death. What more do you want from a movie? And love. What and what do you want from a movie? For God's sakes. I'll talk a little bit more about the cinematography of this movie. That they they had a visual plan in mind when they made this film. They didn't want it to be a typical period piece that looks really beautifully polished. They used the term dirtying up the image when they were working on the mm. film. Like they wanted it to look a like a little um a little grungy, a little ancient. They wanted uh, the locations to feel um, not immaculately presented, even the House of Woodcock. Some of them were Vermeer-like, like, mm -hmm. you know, the um, when they're at the country house and everything around her is dark and him except their faces lit. It just was very Vermeer-like to me. I thought the scene in the, in the restaurant when Reynolds meets Alma, that he was sitting next to this window that almost looked like a painting mm -hmm. like and in, and the interior of the restaurant almost looked like a painting mm -hmm. like there was something sort of uh grungy about yes. it you know they said that they wanted to dirty up the image so what they would do is they would create a haze to the light they would set off smoke machines like an hour before they would shoot so that there was still something in the air 
it gives the it's like it's it's hard to describe but it's like there's something going on in the air it's not cigarette smoke but there's a haziness that's going on that a lot of the scenes in the house of woodcock like that little fashion show that's going on in the house of woodcock like it looks a little smoky in there that is i'm going to remember that for when we do our film that's a great idea yeah. It reminded it's me a, a little it's bit a little of visual secret. Like if you're lighting up the room, put something in the air. Yeah. Um, that I recently watched Barry Lyndon and the lighting in that really, I mean, you know, if you're talking about Kubrick, the lighting in that mm-hmm. reminded me, uh, well, Phantom Thread, I should say, reminded me a little bit of that, the lighting. It seemed like, it seemed like there was a lot of, ambient light and not a lot mm-hmm. of uh you know um manufactured light they were using historical locations like you can't really bring a big lighting grid in there no it's hard to you know so they had to come up with more practical solutions also they only had seven hours of daylight most days because they were filming in london in the winter this film had a 68 day shooting schedule that's it that's really long wait 68 days oh yeah that is two, long two months that is long two months and change uh, to shoot a movie. I mean, maybe it was because it was Paul Thomas Anderson and Daniel Day-Lewis, so they can take all the time they need. But if they wanted to use natural light, that means you can only shoot a few hours a day. Yeah, you have to be very quick, and setting up lights is is onerous and takes a really long time. So they probably just... And and, and, uh, also, uh, I believe that Daniel Day-Lewis is a method actor, so that takes a long time, too. (laughs) (laughs) oh god method acting but he makes it worthwhile the other way that they achieved the look to the movie was that when they were shooting it they slightly underexposed the image and then they pushed the uh film in the development process what that does is it makes the grain and the texture of the image come out a little bit more like and even more so when they would blow the film up from 35 to 70 millimeters so Films like Inherent Vice and Phantom Thread in particular, and The Master, they have a period quality that is uh, created also by the way you present that film. So if you're shooting a movie you bl- and you underexpose it, you overdevelop it, and then you uh, blow it up to a different frame rate, the film grain is going to just pop. Right. And so it just looked incredible in a movie theater. Right. Oh, God, that's... These are, this is all great info. I'm like <laughs> squirreling this away. What I loved about this movie, especially how it ended, was that I spent a lot of the movie thinking, well, if it looks like a Hitchcock movie and if it feels like a Stanley Kubrick movie, it's not going to end well. Like there's, it's, it could be a sort of like dark story and there's a darkness to it for sure. But I think when this movie is all said and done that it's actually a comedy. I don't know if it's a comedy, but it ends with them laughing and yeah. while he's on but the toilet. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that it's a comedic idea of, uh, of uh, you know, this man and woman who are brought together uh, closer by uh, her poisoning him. Like, that's a black comedy idea. That is a black comedy idea. Like kind hearts and coronets, that kind of thing. Yes. I wouldn't call yeah. it a comedy, but it's... Um, Definitely surprising. Yeah, no, it's very subtle comedy if it's a comedy. That that really funny scene where uh, she 
sends everybody out so that she can make dinner, oh, I, I a special find dinner that for him. Com- comedic, I found that so painful. <laughs> it's not so much that it's a comedic uh, scenario, but there's comedic dialogue in the film. Like when when Daniel D. Lewis or when Reynolds Woodcock is very upset about this, what should be a nice thing that this woman's having a special evening with the man of her life. And he says, are you a special agent sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? That like, is true. That's comedy All, line. <laughs> also her scraping the toast and eating it. <laughs> oh, you know, something else that I thought about when I saw it this time is like, it seems like th- most of the time when you're wearing a mic uh, for, yeah. um, for a, uh, um, a movie, they say, don't, don't move too much. Cause you're going to hear the fabric scraping on the mic. And he mm-hmm. deliberately, I believe put the mic so that it, you would hear every single sound, the fabric scraping against the skin because it's about the clothes. Yeah. Right. And it's about a body yeah. wearing clothes. I was like, so aware of the mic picking up sounds. And I believe he did that on purpose. I'm, I would bet dollars to donuts. He did. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that you can do in post production, but I could see a guy like Anderson just actually like recording live sound off Fit, the floor, like shoes hitting the ground to make it super irritating. There's all yeah. there's uh, there, but also just atmospheric, you know, like a dress sliding on a body. You hear the dress sliding Definitely. on the body, like you know. So I mm-hmm. just I just was really aware of the sounds, and it also shows you how super sensitive he is to sight, sounds, smells feel, you know, touch everything. Her arrival has cast a very long shadow. She's barely looked at you this evening, has she? May I warn you of something? My brother can feel cursed that love is doomed for him. I don't like the fabric. Maybe one day you'll change your taste. Maybe I like my own taste. Just enough to get you into trouble. Perhaps I'm looking for trouble. Stop! There is an air of quiet death in this house. You're not cursed. You're loved by me. Stop playing this game. What game? What precisely is the nature of my game? All your rules and your clothes and all this money and everything is a game. This was an ambush. Stop. Are you sent here to ruin my evening and possibly my entire life? Stop it! There's two main criticisms I've heard about this film. One of them said that this film pushes a narrative that geniuses are on some level allowed to be abusive. No, I, I totally disagree with that. The whole premise is that, is that she gets back at him for being abusive, right? Like she poisons him. But this movie came out in the wake of the Me Too er- like news, right? Like 2017. Yes. So some of the sort of the woker reviews of the time were saying that this movie was uh, about uh, the in- to, about indulging a genius. Like, oh well, geniuses can treat women badly and be uh, mean and stuff because they're geniuses. That's I what Anderson's saying here. No offense to these people, but they're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> If that's what they got out of this movie, I don't know. I think that they need to uh, examine themselves. I, I just do not see that being. I mean, that's the opposite of what I took away. Yeah, like he's being punished for being a jerk to her. She has agency. Yeah, like even in the 1950s, she has agency. Do they not know that this film is set in the 1950s? Because the movie is a critique of a controlling man. I think like. 
He's surrounded Absolutely. by women. He thinks he's running the world. Uh, and and this is like the first person in his life who's ever stood up to him. Well, Cyril has, but she... She knows how to play it a little more properly. Like, you know, his nickname for her is my old so-and-so. Yes. He keeps calling her that. Right. But she's in control. Yeah. I mean, he must know that. She like yeah, she's a gatekeeper. A, yeah. And she and she does the dirty work. Like he's, you know, she asks him, Do you want me to get rid of her? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because he doesn't have the for all his uh imperiousness and the way that he makes people afraid of him, he has, he's actually a little too chicken. Yeah, like the way Donald Trump says you're fired on television, but has everybody else fire everybody? Cause he actually yeah. can't, he's actually just a weak little shit. But anyway, yeah. we're on a different, that's a different subject. Um, yeah, no, she, uh, he, I mean, without her, he'd go bankrupt, right? Like she's mm -hmm. the one controlling the, doing the finances so he can do his art. It's, it's mm -hmm. just amazing to me that anyone would think that also Paul Thomas Anderson is like, just like the, 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 the parts he gives to women are incredible. What are they talking about? He's married to a strong woman who's like amazing in her own right. It's just mm -hmm. nuts to me that anyone would say that like anyone. Also, not everyone has to be sympathetic. Like what if, if everything you read and you, and you saw, was sympathetic. Imagine how boring the world would be. Like we can't say, like you really want to watch a movie, a two hour movie about a totally good saintly person who has great politics. Yeah. Depiction is an don't. equal endorsement. Right. Like, I mean, how many great books are written about kind of shitty human beings? And like, everything is not a moral. I mean, like, you know, it's not Aesop's fables. Not everything is, or Miss Manners. I mean, that's just ridiculous to me. I, I, I don't even. I can't wrap my head around it. Sorry if any of these people are people I know and like a lot. The other criticism I heard about this movie: uh, some people were saying that the Alma character has no life outside of her relationship to Reynolds. We don't find out much of anything about her life before him. There's one line of dialogue that mentions that she's a refugee. Uh, we can presume from World War II and perhaps from a Nazi-occupied country. And some people felt the same way about the Emily Watson character from Punch Drunk Love, that she just magically appears, that she's more of a plot device than an actual woman. Um, why do we have to know anything about her? Exactly. I mean, you're, she, first of all, uh, yeah, she's probably lying low, right? if she's a refugee. Um, second of all, uh, that just adds to his idea that here's this like young, naive woman who appears in his life. And so she's his muse instead mm -hmm. of like, she's a full fledged person. And then he un comes to understand when she asserts herself, you know, and becomes rebellious. He just thinks she's being a child, but what she's doing is growing up. Oh, yes, I, she's like very infatuated with him and she does his, his life is so glamorous and, you know, she's not working in a tea house in the North of England anymore, 
you know, scrounging for tips. She gets, yes, she's like smitten with him, but she becomes her own person. And, you know, she is supposed to be kind of a blank slate in the beginning. Um, But if you aren't paying attention, you might think that, but there's all these little subtle things like you were saying about like, you know, if we're going to do a staring contest, I'll win. Yeah. Like, um, like the, there's all these like little hints that she's in fact a very strong woman and she just grows stronger and stronger throughout the film. I don't know why we need to know her background. Like what, what are they going to do? Have like a conversation in bed where she's like, before the war, when I was in Germany, my mother and my father said to me, Alma, you're going to be, do something with your life. And here I am. Like, what, what, do, what do they want? Like, they don't, they, they want, mystery is good. People should have more mystery about them, me included. And this is how people enter our lives, right? All of a sudden you meet somebody that you really like or mm-hmm. friends, lovers or whatever, where, where you had no idea who this person was a minute ago or a day ago. Like, and that's, I think what Anderson is trying to say here a little bit is that when people just find each other, they find out who they are later, but we don't have to know all that stuff. Well, we, don't she's need, a, he says, we don't need all this exposition to explain who someone is to like a movie. Of course not. I want to have something for myself to think about. I agree. He lets you, he trusts the audience to use their imagination and figure it out themselves. Also, like he does treat her like she's a symbol for him. Right. Mm -hmm. And exactly what I said before, like he puts her up on a pedestal. She's a sweet in his mind, a sweet girl who needs guidance and is very dependent on him. Right. And then he finds out he doesn't ask any questions of her. He doesn't ask her about her life. Like Mm -hmm. that's what you're supposed to do. Right. When you get to know someone, but he's not really interested. He wants to know how she can serve him. And then we find out she has quite a personality and can, and is, is, you know, asserts herself quite well. And she lets that stuff out throughout the movie. Like at yeah. one point when uh, he's making her stand for uh, a fitting, she says, no one can stand as long as I can. Yep. Or he's uh, questioning uh, um, her opinions about taste. And she says, maybe I like my own taste. Right. And she starts designing herself. And she comes down wearing the dress she designed at that disastrous dinner. Mm-hmm. And even he has to admit it's quite nice. This is because this couple is heading towards the modern age. She helps bring him into the modern age in many ways. His house of Woodcock is on the way out. The culture's changing. She represents a modern woman and a feminist woman too, I think. Yes, I completely agree. I mean, yes, she changes him. He knows exactly what he didn't know he was being poisoned with mushroom tea the first time, but he knows exactly what's about to happen to him when she, he like chews that omelet and swallows it. And and you can hear, and you can hear him swallowing it. That's like one of the things with the microphone, like you hear him swallowing it. He chooses to make himself sick and put her, he put himself in her hands. And he's being noisy while he's eating. The sort of stuff that drives him up the wall. Oh my gosh, that's so true. He's he's turning into uh, a more accepting person. And he he, ex- wants he literally to- accepts being poisoned by her. And he and he asks her to kiss him. Yes, he says, "Kiss me, my girl, before I'm sick." 
Right. It's amazing. But this is what I mean about how the movie's a comedy. I mean, it's like, it's very flirtatious. Like he, she's poisoning him and he's super flirtatious with her. He likes to, he like wants to eat her up. He's so proud of her for laying him low. He's a mama's boy. And in a Mm -hmm. way, you know, he's found a woman who uh, can flip the script on him anytime she wants. And also Cyril is completely approving of her in the end. She's like, I like her. She says that I like her. But this is the future of the relationship between men controlling the world and women, uh, you know, secretly running the world or getting their chance to run the world. Like the times are changing. The other hint that this movie is a bit of a comedy is that there are two great British comic actresses who are in this film. Gina McKee and Julia Davis both have small roles in the film. Who do they I don't play? know if you know either of their work. Gina McKee plays the 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 first society woman, uh, the one who oh from Topsy needs the dress. She's in Topsy Turvy, yes, and and uh, Julia Davis uh, was on a show called Nighty Night. Okay, but uh, she also shows up. And to me, those were hints that this movie is a secret comedy. Well, I'll have to say that um, first of all, the. British are so good about like not pigeonholing people. So they believe like uh, also there's no snobbery, believe it or not with British people about uh, actors doing TV or film, but also um, I love um, filmmakers who think, who realize like comedic actors can generally do anything because Soderbergh. I was, that's who I was thinking of. Did I stomp on what you were going to say? No, I was, I figured I didn't want to like, um, um, uh, bring it back to me. So I (laughs) I wasn't going to even mention that, but he's like who I'm thinking of in particular. Also a filmmaker I just worked with Mickey Reese loves comedy people because he does dramatic things, but wants a comic undertone to them which like leavens them. So he's very into hiring comedic people to do serious things. Yeah. That's a secret weapon for acting is to get comedic actors to play dramatic parts. They can probably do it better than a dramatic actor. Right. Is what's that phrase? Like dying is easy. Comedy is hard. Yeah. So true. Oh my God. So true. Um, uh, well, I don't know about dying. I'm sure that's not going to be so easy, but, um, but definitely doing comedy is hard. It's fun, but hard. Um, I, I see your point, and I definitely think there are funny pieces to it, but I don't as a whole see it as a comedy, but but I'm willing to concede that I might be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that that was the big rug that he pulled out from under me, was I was expecting, you know, the way that he drops hints uh, like there will be blood gives you a hint about how this movie's going to oh, end. Oh, there will be bu- blood has a <laughs> lot of funny things in it. Yeah. I mean, a lot. I mean, it's heavy, but it's like, you know, I will, even the ending, like the guy dies in a bowling alley for God's sakes. Like he, I will drink your milkshake. That is objectively funny. Also when the, when he's forced to like kneel down and say he's a sinner, like he's so furious at it, but he just needs that money so badly. It's hysterically funny. No, Anderson is a secret comedy filmmaker is one thing that I've been thinking. Well, I mean, Boogie Nights is 
very funny. Tons of comedy. Punch Drunk Love is very funny. Very funny. Uh, I did not find The Master particularly funny. Not It's not a barrel of laughs, but there's there's jokes throughout. Anderson, one, one of the things that I love about him is um, that I think a lot of the inspiration that he takes is um, from his own life, autobiographical sort of details. His father was Ernie Anderson, the famous um, ABC announcer. He used to do all, you know, America's funniest home videos. Oh like my god, that my dad was a voiceover artist too. I didn't know that. Like a pretty, oh really? Yeah, he did. You know, um, MTV News. You hear it first. That was my dad. Yeah, that was your dad. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> and he he whenever they wanted like um, uh, um, Orson Welles without the difficulties, they called my dad in because he could do. Was Orson he? Welles. Did he do like trailers and stuff too? I don't know, but I know he made enough to put two little girls through private school. (laughs) Not bad. (laughs) Not bad at all. The other thing that Anderson is sort of saying in this movie, and maybe it's a bit of a mea culpa. Maybe it's something that he observed when he was a kid. Uh, Maybe it's something that he's learned from being married to Maya Rudolph. But I think also this movie is about what it's like to live with a creative person and to live with an artist and the role that a woman can wind up playing in a relationship with a man being made to be the muse being expected to be the muse. That's not necessarily the woman's job, but it's the danger of being in a relationship with a creative person. Uh, I think that's very, very true. Um, I definitely noticed that with my dad and my mom, um, to bring it to a personal level, my dad, uh, was considered a genius mostly by himself. Um, (laughs) um, uh, he said he was a better writer than Dostoevsky. Um, don't know. And just as good as Herman Melville, I have to not sure about that. Um, but, my mom was also a very creative person and was kind of like, you know, he said there was only one room for one genius in the family. And it was very upsetting to my mom and very hard on her emotionally and for me and my sister. Um, and uh, I certainly know from my own life, uh, being married to someone who's considered a genius also that uh, it's very frustrating to be seen as someone's wife and not a person in their own life. For Mm example, right. For example, one time I was told you're so lucky to be married to the person you're married to by a stranger. And I thought, Mm -hmm. you know, people are people like people are people with flaws and insecurities and complexities and some qualities that are not very nice. And genius being a genius is not licensed to treat people badly as, as these critics were saying, I completely Mm -hmm. agree with that. Um, And unfortunately geniuses tend to be very developed in some ways and very uh, stunted, emotionally stunted because they've never had to really exercise that, part of themselves because they're so people put them up on a pedestal. Mm-hmm. So there's, they all, but, but people need people to support them. 
and your whole life can kind of be uh, uh, eaten up supporting people and you it's a crutch to not develop yourself also or stand up for yourself and say hey it's my turn now Mm -hmm. and that's kind of what alma does i don't know if you stayed until the very end credits but the movie is dedicated to jonathan demi which i thought was very moving god oh my god that's amazing i don't think i did that's oh the my final, God, that that's makes the me final so... card in the tail credits is that's perfect. That this film is for him. That's perfect. Well, that makes total sense to me. He's another one of my favorites. Oh, I love that. It's Jonathan Demi. That makes me so happy. What a gift for him. This movie. Yeah. He would have loved it. I think this is one of his best films. Oh, I mean, it's really deep and whatever, but it's also just enjoyable. It's just a pleasure. It's such a, it's like, uh, reminds me a little bit of Babette's Feast in that it's mm-hmm. just like, if you want to just feel good and enjoy a beautiful movie, like, I don't know, it just gives you life and sustenance and it's so great. And even the mushroom dish that she made for him with the looked poison delicious. mushrooms looked delicious. Oh, by the way, I, I went on an omelet kick after that. I'm like, oh, why yeah? don't I make omelets? I, omelets are great. They're so easy and they're delicious. Like uh, not with poison mushrooms though, with just regular Trader Joe's mushrooms. <laughs> maybe if maybe Whole Foods if I'm really like feeling fancy. Feeling flush. Yeah, feeling flush. So, Zandy, you just got back from Oklahoma City. Tell me a little bit more about what you've been up to. Well, actually, I was staying in a little town 40 miles outside, 40 minutes, well, and probably 40 miles away from Oklahoma City for the most most of the time. But I did, I did spend a, a lot of time in Oklahoma City, and then I went way up north to, I'm going to mispronounce it, Tahlequah, which is like real woodsy. Oklahoma. But yes, I saw my friends and co-workers I worked with on a film called Agnes, which was at the Tribeca Film Festival. Yes. And uh, and I worked with these guys right before the pandemic hit. Um, and when we were all young and innocent and ignorant. And um, last January. And I had a blast with them. They're, they're Oklahoma City uh, filmmakers and they make all their, their movies in Oklahoma. And I thought they were, they are geniuses, but they're also incredibly nice, efficient, funny, like brilliant guys. And I said to myself, I need to stay in touch with these people personally and professionally, because I would do anything with them at any point in time, because I just think they're amazing. And so I did stay friends with them. And I went to visit them. And hopefully I'm going to make a movie with them in November. This is Mickey Reese, correct? This is Mickey Reese. Oh, yes, I should have said Mickey Reese and his producing partner, Jacob Snobble, who uh, is also a co-writer and, uh, and one of the best actors I've ever seen in my life. 
We've talked about Mickey Reese on this podcast. When I did a show with Peter Kaplowski on this cult movie called The Astrologer. Yes, he's their big champion. But we talked about this cult movie called The Astrologer, and Peter told me all about how great Mickey Reese is because he's a similar guy. Like he's a guy who, come hell or high water, gets movies made. He's the one of the most prolific people I've ever met, and he's fast. He he is fast. Like he does most of his movies within a week, and he uses like the same cast of characters who are all incredibly talented, wonderful people, and so you see like the same people playing different parts in all of his movies. And you see like the wide range of things that they can do. Uh, Jacob's novel really is one of the best actors I've ever seen in my life. He, uh, Mickey made a movie called Mickey Reese's alien because (laughs) 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 it's just such a silly title Um, because it, and it's us, it's, it's about Elvis in like this stage of his life where they are telling him he has to make, he has to go do TV and he doesn't want to do it. And he's in crisis, like having an absolute crisis. And they didn't want it to be like an Elvis movie. They wanted it. It's a stylized Elvis movie. So Mm -hmm. they called it Mickey Reese's alien so that they would know that it's like its own weird thing. But the funny part is, is that as stylized and strange as it is, it actually follows it almost to the letter exactly what was going on in Elvis's life at that time. Like I thought, I don't know that much about Elvis. So I didn't know he had a twin brother who died when they were born. Like I had no idea. His name was Jesse. Jesse Guerin. So there's a character, Jesse Guerin. I thought they were just making it up. Like there's the twin, twin brother who comes back at a certain point. And there's like Elvis gets really into karate which really happened. And Priscilla really did have an affair with the karate instructor. And <laughs> there's all these, they have a, there's a, there's like a dinner scene with Tom Jones and his wife. And it looks like, uh, it looks like the last supper, the way they filmed it. It is just like, it's on it's It's in black and white. They filmed it in, I think a week and they got like Graceland because uh, like a rich guy from town just gave them their house. So they're like, we only have it for a week. Let's get it done in a week. I love it. It looks beautiful. And Jacob plays Elvis. And it's like one of the best performances I've ever seen. I don't know how you do stylized and grounded at the same time, but that's what he does. You guys are working together again soon, right? Here's hoping. Yeah. We have a, we have a great cast together. And, uh, we're, we have to get the Oklahoma rebate and there's like, it's, they're backed up. So we're going to get that. We're getting financing right now and hopefully studio something or other, but yeah, it's all in, it's all gonna, I'm determined to have it come together. I'm an accidental producer on it because I got the cast together, but (laughs) we know that producer is a very amorphous term. So I, fortunately we have other producers who know more about financing and deal-making and they're absolutely wonderful. And Jacob and Mickey wrote the script and Jacob is going to be directing it and uh, it's going to be wonderful. Oh, the script is so good. It's a quasi horror movie. It's a horror psychological horror movie with very funny elements in it. 
and the 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 nun one was also too right is it a horror yes, film or is it, it, it well you know it, it's there horror is like the horror devotees are very very strict and so it's hard calling it a horror film because it's sort of the first part is a horror film and the second part is a psychological is a drama um, and is like an existential kind of thing. But the first part is uh, like a, uh, uh, is like a take on um, exorcism movies. It takes place in a convent and a nun may or may not be, uh, um, be haunted by a demon. Mm. So it's like, it's like, exorcism movies but but very stylized so something's just like a little bit off um it's i love i love it it's really great and i play a flirty nun which is very funny as a jewish girl to play a nun (laughs) especially a flirty one i had the comedic part in it I've heard nothing but good things about Mickey Reese, so I can't wait to see oh, what you guys well, do. Well, also he's just a doll. We we he does these um he does these ads for his friend's liquor store, George's Liquors, uh, in Oklahoma City. He does these like less than a minute long Instagram ads, and uh, while I was there last week, we did one. We did it in ten minutes. It was a total blast. Um, and you know he's just he's like we were like swimming and he was like sitting off to the side, like looking up. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, Oh, just brainstorming. Like he just does not stop brainstorming ideas for movies. He's just like, he just did one this summer called uh, country gold. And it's about a meeting between George Jones and uh, Garth Brooks, which actually happened, but then they take it to an unreal level where George Jones is planning to get cryogenically frozen the next day. And he wants Garth Brooks to take on the mantle of the greatest country music star. (laughs) That's, that's like Mickey in a nutshell, just like bonkers. Their next ideas for a movie sounds bonkers too. I cannot wait to see it come together and it'll probably come together next month because they're like, let's just shoot it. I was, I mean, that's, that's the big, that's the big obstacle for so many people is they have this really hilarious idea and then it never goes past that. But this guy actually makes them happen. He's just down and dirty. I mean, what does Peter say about him? Probably the exact same thing I'm saying. Yeah. No, Peter said that like he, 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 he basically is just churning out high quality stuff. Yeah. He just wants to, he like needs to get it out. I mean, this guy is like, most people in Oklahoma talk like, pretty slowly which is not to say they're dumb they are not they're as smart as can be he's like he talks faster than i do and i'm from new york city (laughs) like the guy is just like so bright he's like a terrier that's what i would say he's like a like a super bright terrier who needs to run around as much as possible or he'll go crazy and jacob is like really calm and measured and like um thoughtful and pensive and together they make like a terrific they just are a magical team wow zandy it's been so great to have you on the show um oh thank you so much for having me this is 
absolutely lovely and you're wonderful on Twitter and you're just as wonderful in real life. So Zandy, where can people find you on Twitter? Oh, you know, if you want to hear a lot of political opinions, you can find me at Zandy with a Z. Uh, Occasionally I talk about film and my kids all the time and my dogs and my rabbit and food. Uh, But I have a lot of opinions. So just be prepared. I'm, I think I'm pretty, do I come off as nice on Twitter? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, good. Yeah. All right. Cause I worry about that. I I'm really actually pretty nice and I'm pretty diplomatic except on Twitter. And then also, uh, I have a professional page on Instagram, which is Zandy Hartig. And then I have a, I have a private one, but that's with my kids. So I probably, if I don't know you, you probably won't be accepted. Sorry. I'll put the uh, the commercial you did for the liquor store oh, on, please on do. the show description. Okay, and also uh, I do have a blog, which is Zandy Hartig, and it has my reel on it, and it has some of my writings and my paintings and stuff like that if you want to check it out. If you don't, that's okay, too. It was a pleasure to have you on the show, and uh, you. you're welcome you... back anytime. Oh, I would love to, love to, love to. Thank you so much, Jesse. That concludes this episode, but we'll have another junk filter in the next few days. If you're enjoying the podcast, please like and subscribe to it, and please tell your friends. Patrons of the podcast receive access to bonus episodes. There'll be at least two a month, and you can sign up at patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.